Hello, and welcome to Actively Speaking. I'm your host, Steve Blyberg. Join us each episode as we discuss current issues concerning capital markets and portfolio management from the perspective of an active manager. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Actively Speaking. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about airlines, and my guest is Nigel Frankson, who is an analyst here at Epic and part of the capital reinvestment team. Welcome, Nigel. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so the airline industry is kind of notorious as one that for a long, long time uh, was, was not particularly profitable. And, and there's a famous interview that Warren Buffett did uh, almost 20 years ago. This was in 2002. He was, he was with the, Gar uh, I'm sorry, the Telegraph uh, in London. And he said, if a capitalist had been present at Kitty Hawk back in the early 1900s, he should have shot Orville Wright. He would have saved his progeny money. But seriously, the airline business has been extraordinary. It has eaten up capital over the past century like almost no other business because people seem to keep coming back to it and putting fresh money in. You've got huge fixed costs, you've got strong labor unions, and you've got commodity pricing. That's not a great recipe for success. I have an 800 number now that, if, that I call if I get the urge to buy an airline stock. I call at 2 in the morning and I say, my name is Warren and I'm an aeroholic. And then they talk me down, close quote. Uh, more recently, though, Warren Buffett has uh, made headlines a couple years ago because he took a stake in Southwest Airlines. So, Nigel, what changed between 2002 and the uh, recent years such that Warren Buffett, who was pretty darn skeptical of, of investing in airlines uh, 20 years ago, is now an airline investor? It's important to look at the uh, airline industry in two distinct periods. There is the pre-financial crisis and the post-financial crisis. Why, while 9-11 essentially brought the industry down to its knees, the great financial crisis was really the tipping point that really changed the, the psychology uh, throughout the management teams and changed how these uh, companies were run, and in my opinion, permanently so. Prior to the financial crisis, you had a more fragmented industry. The top four carriers accounted for about 63% of, uh, of all traffic in the domestic market. You had an empire building psychology. The goal was going after market share by any means necessary. There were not returns or cash flow uh, uh, focused. Uh, what changed with the great financial crisis were bankruptcies, uh, poor financial performances, plummeting stock prices, and something clearly had to change. Since the great financial crisis, we've, we've had several uh, mergers that took place in the space. As a result, when you look at the industry today, the top four carriers account for about 85% of domestic traffic versus 63% or so prior to the great financial crisis. Um, some noteworthy uh, M&A transactions are Northwest Airlines with Delta. I think that was the, I mean, there were, there were mergers prior to that, but I think the Northwest-Delta uh, combination in 2000 2010, I believe it was, was really the trigger for this industry to really consolidate and for the, uh, the network carriers in particular to um, get their act together. This evolution of the industry is really focused on the network carriers. That's your Delta Airlines, your United Airlines, and your American Airlines. These airlines have been around forever, and they're the ones that have changed the most dramatically uh, over the last several decades. I would view Delta Airlines as the class of the network airlines. They were essentially the first to have a meaningful merger. 
they are the first to rationalize their fleet. They were the first to uh, acquire discipline as far as capacity is concerned, uh, managing their balance sheet, uh, simple things such as bringing ancillaries and charging you for bags or changing your seat. They were the first amongst the network carriers to employ these various tactics that improved returns and improved margins. Okay, okay so let me, uh, well, first of all, so clearly consolidation, you're saying, has played a big role yes. in the uh, sort of move towards profitability. Uh, I always like to point out that at one point in our history, we had uh, airlines covering practically every point on the compass. We've had, uh, we used to have a Northeast Airlines, became part of Delta a long time ago. There was Eastern, there was Southeast, there was Southern, which also eventually ended up in, uh, actually in Delta, but a, a torturous path. Um, they actually became part of Republic, which then became part of Northwest, which then became part of Delta. Uh, we still have Southwest Airlines. We had a Western Airlines, became part of Delta. We had a Northwest Airlines, uh, that's part of Delta. So you're, uh, you're referring to the um, post-1978. So in 1978, the industry deregulated. As a function of that, you saw a lot of competition. And literally something like 24 uh, airlines were started between 1978 and 1985, uh, mo most of the ones you're mentioning as well. I would say by the early 2000s, the, the, if not sooner, the, the, those 24 airlines ultimately compressed back down to two. Yeah, that that proliferation of air of airlines really started in 1978, and then petered out probably by the 90s. Right. Um, so yeah, so consolidations played a, a role. You mentioned um, uh, you know Delta, you know charging for bags, stuff like that. It seems like that was also a significant change in the industry. There were things that used to be free, like food, uh, checking your bags, uh, that they were able to make fees stick for. That uh, there was, I think, annoyance at first. Really, you know, people were kind of annoyed that now they had to pay to check a bag or they had to pay to buy food on the plane. Of course, nobody objects uh, when you get on an Amtrak train and they charge you for food. Nobody expects to get free food, but simply because there was a time when they used to give you food for free and it changed, uh, there was resistance, but the point is it has stuck. And what role do those fees, like uh, food, baggage, and also importantly the change fees, if you want to make a change to a reservation, it can cost like $150. Uh, what role do those fees play in the profitability of these airlines today? Uh, they're quite significant, but I think it's important to um, to highlight certain things about the industry before we get into the, the fee structures because they're leveraged very differently depending on the airline and depending on the type of airline. There are, I would say, four different business models within the industry. Uh, it's easiest to highlight the differences between them by looking at the extremes. First, on one side, you have the network carriers. Uh, network carriers leverage a hub-and-spoke network geared towards maximizing the destination, uh, number of destinations and frequency to those destinations. They have segmented cabins, they have heterogeneous fleets, if you will, different sized aircrafts that have different ranges to service different markets depending on where they are and how far they are and so forth. Uh, these airlines are mature business models, they're GDP growers, and um, again, those are the American Airlines of the world, the United, the Delta. Etc. Historically, you buy one ticket and you pretty much get everything. You can check in as many bags as you want. You get an in-flight meal. It's the standard airline experience that we that most of us grew up with. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the ultra-low-cost carriers. They fly a homogeneous fleet. 
So maybe the uh, Boeing 737, for example, which is the Southwest airline uh, aircraft type, uh, they fly those exclusively. Uh, they have virtually no cabin segmentation, so there's no business class, no first class. Uh, it's a point-to-point -point network. It's geared towards leisure passengers, and they do some unbundling of pricing. In fact, the spirit airlines of the world will nickel and dime you for everything you can conceivably think of. Uh, these carriers tend to be smaller, they tend to be plus GDP growers. And then you have business models that are in between the ultra low cost carrier and the network carriers. And these in between business models leverage components of, e of, of either side depending on where along the spectrum they care to lie. So for example, Alaska Airlines, you could consider a low cost network carrier. They probably look more like Delta than a Spirit Airlines. And then you have someone like a JetBlue, which is more of a low cost carrier without the network. And they probably look more like Spirit than like Delta. So these intermediate business models fall between somewhere in that spectrum. Uh, the low, the ultra low cost carrier business model kind of started in 2000, 2007, 2008 and really picked up speed, steam post financial crisis. And it's this business model that started to, that was again plus GDP growers taking market share and kind of forced the hand of the rest of the industry to more aggressively unbundle the, the price of the ticket. That allows you to reach more travelers. It allows people to pay for exactly what they want if you want to fly from New York to Disney World, for example, but for whatever reason you don't want to carry any bags, you don't have to pay for any bags, it becomes a cheaper flight for you, it becomes more likely that you will fly. Uh, so that ultra-low cost carrier and the success that it's had over the last 10 years is what's um, fostered this culture of price unbundling. So in, as a competitive response to the ultra-low cost carriers and the spirit airlines of the world, the network carriers like the Deltas and Americans had to, in order to defend market share, had to start unbundling the ticket price to some extent. They're nowhere near as unbundled as the ultra-low-cost carriers, but they have given a little uh, with um, the comeuppance, for example, of the basic economy section of the airplane with charging for bags, with charging for change fees. That's why you're seeing that with the network carriers. As far as the profitability of these ancillary services, it can be shown that if the global airline industry produced about and these are rough numbers, $20 billion in net income for 2019, $80 billion of that was ancillary fees. It's literally well more than... Wait, wait. So you said $20 billion in profit, but yes. $80 billion. Yes. So if you excluded all the change fees, all the baggage fees, all the ancillary add-ons and so forth, and most of these uh, add-ons are pure profit features that you're charging for as an airline service provider, the industry would be negative by billions oh, oh, of dollars. Wow, wow. I see. <laughs> wow, so that's where all the profits come from. Yes. More than 100% of the profits come yes. from those fees. Now, that depends. That, that's different airline by airline. That's yeah. less true for Delta. That's more so true for the Spirits Airlines and the um, Frontiers and so forth. But generally speaking, all the profitability and then some comes from ancillary fees. My goodness. Wow. So if they had not started doing that, they might still be unprofitable. Well, yes and, yes and no. Look, if you're going to fly to um, 
Disney World, for example, with the family, you're going to have bags. So <laughs> it's not fair to say that, you know, no one flies to Disney World without bags. Yeah. The value proposition is still underpinned, if you will, by the fact that you need to go from A to B. So I think this is just a clever way of segmenting the menu of services, if you will, but ultimately you're really charging the customer to right. get from A to B. Right. And of course they're going to want to print out their ticket. Of course they're going to want to sit near a window or near the island. And these things, you know, it's just a way of getting the most price sensitive right. person to right. fly with you and fill up the plane. Right. So actually I guess it's more that if they weren't charging separately for these fees, just the base fare would be higher. Would right. you know, yeah. You know the the popular stereotype is that, of course, it's the business class traveler where they, that is very profitable. You know, it can cost, you know, $5,000 for a business class ticket, you know, to California or to Europe versus, you know, a few hundred for the coach ticket. Um, why, so why, uh, you know, you mentioned, for example, Southwest doesn't have a business class. Like, why have they passed up that opportunity to, to charge more to some travelers? Uh, and, and first of all, is it true mm -hmm. that, you know, like American Delta United, do they make a disproportionate share of their money from their business class travelers? Well, it's absolutely true, and, and you touched on the reason why. It's, uh, it's the business model that these uh, airlines are leveraging. The network carriers are geared towards the business traveler. That's why they have a hub-and-spoke network, because hub-and-spoke networks are more uh, flexible and um, provide, simply provide more options in terms of coverage and, uh, and, and frequency to various destinations. They are catering to the business customer. So 70% of their revenue comes from 25 to 30% of their customers, and those are the folks sitting up front. Now that's clearly not true for the Southwest of the world or the spirits of the world who simply don't have a first class or a business class. And they thusly are getting more of their uh, revenue, quote unquote, from the ancillary services. So you were talking about the period when there were a lot of airlines started up, and, and I was looking uh, at some of the the smaller airlines that are around today, like Frontier, uh, Spirit, Sun Country, yeah, you know, the last time, really the last, uh, sort of the most, the newest of the sort of top 10 airlines in the U.S. is JetBlue, which when it started flying in 2000, that was 20 years ago. Um, so it seems like, it ha has it become harder to start up an airline, and if so, why? So yes, I, I would say JetBlue is probably the newest airline to enter the market, but the current iteration of Spirit Airlines started in 2007 when Indigo Partners right, right. Uh, okay. took them over. So in my opinion, the post-2007 Spirit Airlines is a different airline than pre-2007 and thusly represents uh, entrance into the market. Um, but to answer your question directly, yes, I think it is more difficult to uh, start an airline today versus 20 years ago. Uh, the barriers to entry uh, are, are significantly higher. And when I say barriers to entry, I mean, look, anyone can start a poorly run airline. Anyone can start an airline that fails. Uh, when I say barriers to entry, I mean meaningfully impacting the established players and gaining uh, meaningful market share. I think the barriers to entry there are higher simply because the market's more consolidated. Uh, the existing players have uh, economies of scale. They have more lane density. They are better able to employ predatory pricing tactics that will drive uh, fledgling competition out of the market. Uh, for example, um, their yield management system, their yield management systems today are far more uh, 
sophisticated than they were 20 years ago. They can look at how much they're pricing for every route, for every time of day, and they know exactly when that new entrant is attempting to enter a market, let's say, four o'clock flight from Cincinnati to Texas somewhere. Uh, and they can just, for that singular flight, uh, they can drive the price all the way down and take a loss on that route. But because they're so big and making so much money elsewhere, to be frank, it won't impact their financials and that fledgling, fledgling airline will be no more. So mm -hmm. the only offset I can think to that is interest rates. Uh, interest rates are certainly lower today than they were 20 years ago. Airlines are capital-intensive businesses to the extent you're going to borrow billions of dollars to do something. I suppose it's probably easier today than 20 years ago. But every other uh, factor, market force I can think of uh, makes it harder today to start an airline. Mm -hmm. Do you think we've seen the, the end of the consolidation or, or are there further mergers to come? There probably are further mergers to come. If you listen to the conference calls, I would say Alaska Air sees itself as an acquirer. Um, JetBlue sees itself as an acquirer. Uh, there isn't much left to acquire, right. but, <laughs> um, but they seem pretty focused on going it alone. Uh, Alaska Air, for example, recently purchased uh, Virgin Air. Uh, Alaska Air, again, is a low-cost network carrier. It's one of those in-between business models that ultimately looks more like a Delta than, say, a Spirit Airlines on the ultra-low-cost carrier end of the spectrum. They're a West Coast-focused airline. They're, think of them as a regional Delta. Um, in a perfect world, I think they would like to see themselves as perhaps acquiring JetBlue and becoming bigger because JetBlue is more focused on the East Coast. They're more focused on the West Coast. So the two would make sense. So you're right. Uh, there isn't a whole lot left to acquire, but I, I think we may have one or two more mergers left to go. Okay. So so it, it's interesting. So airlines are one of the few industries it seems that are kind of immune to you know disruption from from the internet. I mean Amazon is uh, you know I don't know who knows maybe the Amazon could start up an airline, but <laughs> uh, but yeah I mean it's um, it just seems like it's. You know, you do the whole point of flying is to physically move people yeah. from one place to another, which is kind of hard to uh, to do in any other way uh, unless somebody perfects the whole Star Trek. Uh, I, I would say the uh, biggest impact that the 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 internet has had in the industry is probably just price discovery. I mean, yeah, twenty years ago you had to call a, a, um, a travel agent to to book a flight and to perhaps pick the best flights for you. And I'm not entirely sure how much of the market any individual flight attendant uh, f uh, travel agent could see. Um, today everything's on your phone, on your computer screen, you can see every price for every airline uh, going to the destination of your choice. And uh, so that price discovery and transparency is a lot higher today, and that's probably put some downward pressure on um, ticket prices. Yes, yeah, well certainly I think in, you know, in inflation adjusted terms, flying is uh, cheaper today than, yeah. than it was 30, 40 years ago. I mean, and of course deregulation played a role in that as well uh, back in the 70s. Let's talk about a, a shorter term threat to the industry, uh, coronavirus, uh, but uh, is this having an impact? It's clearly having an impact on flights in and out of China. The, I know that the volume of so many airlines have eliminated their flights for a while uh, to and from China, but um, you know, are you, have, are, have any of the airlines started talking about this? So, you know, for, you know, recently Apple talked about the impact of, of the coronavirus on its supply chain. 
Uh, are, you, are we seeing any early uh, comments from airlines on uh, what's happening to traffic as a result of this? Not a lot. Um, it seems that, so first of all, this actually only applies to the network carriers. For the most part, they're the only uh, carriers uh, within the United States that connect to international destinations. Um, and then some sub-segment of that is going to Asia and some smaller sub-segment is going to China. So far, it looks like it's going to be a low single-digit headwind to revenue um, to date. The longer this goes, the more of an impact it will have, but it really, it's a low single-digit impact to, the, to, to business so far. Uh, well, I think that's what all the questions uh, we have time for. So, uh, Nigel, thanks again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Remember to subscribe to Actively Speaking on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find all of our previous episodes and additional content on our website, www.eipny.com. The information contained in this podcast is distributed for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or recommendation of any particular security, strategy, or investment product. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but not guaranteed. The information contained in this podcast is accurate as of the date submitted, but is subject to change. Any performance information referenced in this podcast represents past performance and is not indicative of future returns. Any projections, targets, or estimates in this podcast are forward-looking statements and are based on EPIC's research, analysis, and assumptions made by EPIC. There can be no assurances that such projections, targets, or estimates will occur and the actual results may materially be different. Other events which were not taken into account in formulating such projections, targets, or estimates may occur and may significantly affect the returns or performance of any accounts and or funds managed by EPIC. To the extent this podcast contains information about specific companies or securities, including whether they are profitable or not, they are being provided as a means of illustrating our investment thesis. Past references to specific companies or securities are not a complete list of securities selected for clients, and not all securities selected for clients in the past year were profitable.